This week, I uh, checked my calendar and uh, realized that it's been exactly three years since I started serving at this church. Uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, a member told me uh, that I have uh, much more gray hair now than when I first started. And of course, it's because I grew in wisdom. <laughs> I remember three years ago, one of the commitments I made when I first started serving here was that I was going to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And I had set aside a personal goal, and that was to try to go through the Bible from cover to cover. And so we started at Genesis a few years back. We went to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and now we are back in Exodus, and we'll hopefully jump into the New Testament after this series. Now, trying to go from cover to cover, trying to preach the entire Bible means that I don't get to just pick and choose. It means that I can't just skip over difficult sections. And I think that this is certainly one of those sections. See, many of us are familiar with the beginning of the Exodus story. It's about God rescuing the Israelites from slavery. We are familiar with this story. It's been adapted into books and movies. We are also familiar with the Ten Commandments. It's taught often. However, that is only half of the book. If you ever read through Exodus, you'll know that the Ten Commandments ends at chapter 20. And you have this whole other section in Exodus that's rarely touched. Of the 40 chapters, you'll know that 13 of them deal with the building of the tabernacle, the building of this thing. I think we need a, there you go. This, almost half of Exodus deals with the building of this tent. Um, seven chapters, chapter 24 to chapter 31, are on the instructions on how to build this, right? And then, if that wasn't enough, chapters 35 all the way to 40 are on the people building it according to the instructions. And so, while this section uh, may, for some of us, be monotonous, repetitive, and might not seem important to us, clearly it was important to God. Clearly, it was important to God. So this morning, what I like to do is I like to give us all just a, a sweeping survey of this tent, what this means, and I'll do that by first answering the basic question, what does the tabernacle represent? And then I'll offer just three observations uh, that we can draw uh, some practical truths uh, from, and then finally, I'll end by asking the question, what does all of this mean for us? And so, um, I'll start by just telling you what the tabernacle represents, just offer three observations, and then end by sharing how it's applicable to all of us. So first, uh, the tabernacle looked like this. It was structured in this way. There were three parts, as you can see. Let's see if this works. Uh, there you go. So we have the outer court. Yeah, it's, uh, 
Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we have the outer court, that's the first section. And then, if you look here, there's what's called the holy place. Uh, right there, it's called the holy place. And then you go into the most holy place. And so there are three sections, one, two, and three. Now, on the outer court, if we start from uh, your right going left, you start by, uh, the priest would start by entering and he would meet the altar of the burnt offerings. Uh, this altar was uh, called, it was made out of uncut stone. It's sometimes referred to as the bosom of the earth. And then the priest, after offering this uh, sacrifice, would go to the wash basin. He would wash, and this at, at times is called the sea. And then he would enter into the holy place where there was a table for bread, lampstand, and the incense of altering. And the Bible says that this altar uh, burned continuously. And then the priest would go into the most holy place, and there would be the ark and cherubims, these ancient, ancient uh, angels uh, surrounding the ark. This was what God had invested 13 chapters out of 40 in Exodus 4 to teach what this is, how to build this, and to actually the retelling of building of this, this place. Now, we have to ask the question, what does all of this mean? What does this mean? Well, the tabernacle actually starts to make sense when you take this and when you flip it, when you make it vertical. If we flip it, it looks like this. It's a little smaller, but if you can make this out, if you flip it, it looks like this. It's three parts still going from top down. And if you think about the way in which God had instructed this tabernacle, what it's supposed to be, you actually, you, you realize that what God is doing is he's not building some arbitrary house of worship, but he's actually, through the tabernacle, building a replica of creation, of heaven and earth. Okay. Remember the outer courts, right? It's, it, the first thing was this altar of burnt offerings. And it's made out of uncut stone. It's made out of the earth. That's what scripture says. And then they would go to the wash basin, which is often referred to as the sea. And on the wash basin, there would be these decorations of flowers and animals on it. And so what God is trying to do is this outer court, he's trying to show that it represents earth. Everything in this creation, the land, the sea, the animals, and the plants, okay? And then what happens is the priest would go into the holy place, the second layer, and once the priest goes in, he would see that there would, it, it was filled with uh, these seven lights, seven lights. These seven lights, right, that represent what? The sun, the moon, Right? And the five, uh, five visible planets uh, with the human eye. Right? So uh, Mer Mercury, Venus, or my very, not educated, but mother just served. So Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Right? And so there would be these seven lights, including the sun and the moon, and that, that would represent what we can see with our eyes. And then there was this, this incense that was burning continuously, creating this smoke all around this, this holy place. Further, the fabric 
according to the instructions, was made out of blue and purple yarn. When you look up at the sky at night, you see blue and purple. And so this place, the holy place, represented what we can see in the sky. Okay? And then from there, the priest would enter into the most holy place where it was filled with angels, cherubims. And then the ark, which is often referred to as the footstool of God's throne. So what we find here with the tabernacle is a replica of creation, of earth, heaven, and the very place where God dwells. And so, what God is instructing the people to build is a replica of heaven and earth. And as the priest passes through, he is going through heaven and into the very place where God dwells so that Israel can actually meet with God. And so the tabernacle that we find here in Exodus isn't some arbitrary design, but it actually represents heaven and earth. Now, if I can just geek out just a little bit, there's something really cool about the way in which God tells this story. Okay? Uh, this statement, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, is actually found seven times okay, in this section. Okay? It's found in 25 1, 30.11, 30.17, 22, 34.31.7. And for the first six times that the Lord said to Moses, is actually in reference to the building of the tabernacle. But the seventh time it says, the Lord said to Moses, it's the Lord said to Moses, and it's referring to a Sabbath commandment. And so this section in Exodus is actually arranged in a way so that the readers can see this and hear this and think, oh, this is creation. In the beginning, right, God spoke. He spoke he spoke six times until the seventh time where he commanded Sabbath worship. And so we find in today's passage, this is exactly what's going on. 25.9, this is what God says to Moses. He says, he shows Moses, he, you know, Moses goes up to Sinai, and God shows him heaven itself. And God says to Moses, build this tabernacle Exactly I have shown you, according to the pattern that you have just seen, so shall you make it. So put simply, the tabernacle is God's way of bringing heaven to earth. In other words, God's vision isn't to bring earth to heaven, but God's aim, his vision, is to bring heaven to earth to bring heaven down. Now, with this in mind, we can see now why it's important. With this in mind, let me just offer uh, three observations uh, that, that I think merit our consideration this morning. The first is this. The tabernacle uh, was sacred. It was sacred. Because the Israelites understood what the tabernacle represented, because they knew that this was the mode through which God was going to dwell among his people, this was God's way of bringing heaven down to earth, 
There was a sacredness as to how they viewed and treated the tabernacle. You know, with sacredness comes precision. With sacredness comes caution. There's attention. There's deliberation. There was a sacredness behind this tent. You know, I think a lot about this wilderness time where the Israelites are just wandering around for about 40 years. Now, I'm sure everyone was amazed when this tent was first erected, when this tent was first built. But remember, the tabernacle was a tent. It wasn't permanent. It had to be moved around in the desert. So whenever the people moved, guess what they had to do? They had to pack everything up. They had to carry it. And whenever they camped again, they had to set it up again, exactly according to the measurements. They did this over and over and over again. Now, you know, one thing you have to know is that the Israelites, they complained a lot. The Israelites complained about a lot of things. They complained about the food. They complained about the leadership. They complained about the direction. But the one thing they didn't complain about was having to carry this heavy tent and set it up over and over and over again, exactly according to the measurements. You know, I heard there was a time in our congregation's um, life where we actually didn't worship here, but uh, I heard that we used to worship in the gym. For those of you who were around, uh, you, you know what that was like, right? Now, you know, I, just, just on a side note, you know, every time I worship at, at, in a gym, and, you know, during worship when the praise is, like, rocking and it's great, you know, I have my hands lifted in worship, right, and I see the basketball hoop, sometimes I'm just tempted to, to bend my wrist and say, Kobe, right? I don't know, it's just a weird, weird thing. But I, I know that we used to worship in the gym, right? And uh, every week, the people would have to set up and then tear down. Set up, tear down. You know, I wonder, at that time, how many of our people grumbled because they actually had to prepare for worship. You know, and I wonder, if I was here, how many times I would have thought, man, this is impractical. It doesn't make sense. You know, Moses just had to do one thing. All he had to do was add one line. After he went up to Sinai, received the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, all he had to do was just forge one extra line. And that one extra line was, and the tabernacle had these heavenly, strange things called wheels, right? All he had to do was just add that, and the people could just wheel it along as they went. But they didn't. Because... They understood what the tabernacle represented. They regarded it as sacred. It was a holy place where God met with man. And if something is holy, if something is sacred, demanding reverence, friends, it can never be practical. In other words, sacredness and practicality are always at odds with one another. You know, this is the reason why I think our generation and our culture today has a tough time understanding and appreciating the sacredness 
or the holiness of God. And that's because practicality has become our God. Friends, holiness must be inconvenient. Holiness is always impractical. For those of you seeking holiness, let me say, start by seeking inconvenience. If you want to grow in holiness, which the Bible certainly calls all Christians to do, your first question to everything can't be, is this practical? Friends, the gospel call is not practical. It's sacred. And because it's sacred, it's quite inconvenient. The tabernacle, this tent, was the epitome of impracticality. It was holy. The second thing, second observation was the tabernacle was valuable. Consider just the material that it took to build this. Blue and purple yarn, uh, acacia wood, bronze, silver, gold. These are really, really expensive material. I mean, even to, try, even to get dyed material, to get dyed yarn during that time was really, really expensive. And we have to ask the question, where did they get all this stuff from? Right? Remember, the Israelites are in the wilderness, and they were slaves for 400 years. They have no inheritance. Where did they get all these valuable possessions? Well, if you remember, when Israel left Egypt, God actually instructed the Israelites, hey, go to the Egyptians and ask them for all of their valuables. They're going to give it to you. And so they did. When the Israelites left Egypt, they did not lift a finger, but they plundered the Egyptians. They took everything that the Egyptians had. It was God who had defeated the Egyptians, but it was the Israelites who had reaped the benefits. So now here we are in the wilderness. They have all of these possessions, all of these goods, and they don't know what to do with them. But now here we see that God had a purpose for giving to the Israelites these valuables. It was to build the tabernacle. And one of the most interesting things about at least the building of the tabernacle that I find is this. God doesn't say, all right, cough it up now. Cough it up. This is the reason why you had plundered the Egyptians. This is the reason why you have all these things. Now cough it up. It's time to give it back. God doesn't say, hey, this is what I intended. You didn't do anything to earn this or deserve this. Give it to me. No, this is what God says. Exodus 25, 2, he says this. Take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution. From every man whose hearts move him. You know, just two things that I just want to just draw on. First thing is this. God has a purpose for everything. The reason you are who you are, the reason you are where you are, the reason why you do the things that you do and you have the things that you have is because God has a purpose for all of that. And the sooner you find out what that is, the closer you will be to happiness. Friends, happiness doesn't come 
from just simply being somewhere or from simply just doing something. Happiness doesn't come from just simply having something, but happiness comes when you understand why. Why are you where you are? Why is it that God has placed you where you are? Why is it that you have the things you have? Once you understand the why, then you, then you can reach happiness. You see, what's so interesting about this is the people, they have all of these possessions. But you know, for us, while these things might be valuable, they have no worth in the wilderness. There's no market for these things. The Israelites could have collected all the amount of gold that they had, and they could not buy a single cup of cold water with it. It had absolutely no worth and no value. Having all of those possessions brought no satisfaction because they did not understand why. But once they understood why, that's when those materials actually became valuable. The second thing that I want to draw just from the tabernacle being so valuable is that God's mode of operation is not through force or coercion, but God's mode of operation is through the persuasion of the heart, the moving of the heart, the transforming of the affections to bring about voluntary obedience. The tabernacle, friends, was valuable, but it wasn't coerced or forced. The value from the tabernacle came from the people's willingness and their sacrifice. That's what gave it value because it showed that God's salvation was actually able to change hearts. The gospel power is not by fear or through force, but it's through the transforming of the heart. The gospel call, this paradoxical call to come and die so that you can find yourself, come and die so that you can truly live, is a call not by force or by fear, but it's a call through the persuasion of the heart, through voluntary obedience. The, the third thing, the tabernacle was unfitting. Mind you, God is building this valuable, valuable tent in the wilderness. It's not in some garden. It's not next to some landscapes. But it's in the wilderness. And it certainly doesn't fit. Right? This tabernacle, which represented heaven itself, holiness, sacredness, God's dwelling. Where is it? It's in the wilderness, a lifeless place. In a place that was the essence of death, in a place for miles and miles, the only thing you can see is arid, dry land. The place that represented lifelessness and hopelessness. There in the middle, you have that which signifies life and hope. The tabernacle, which represented forgiveness, atonement, fellowship through bread, revelation and hope, God's dwelling with this, his people was in the wilderness. I mean, how refreshing must that have been? And all that the worshipers can see was dry land for miles and miles in either direction. There, right before their eyes, 
is God himself dwelling with his people. What life in such lifeless places. So the tabernacle is certainly unfitting. Now, what does all of this mean for us? I think this is the next question we have to ask because clearly we're not worshiping in a tabernacle. Well, to understand what this means for us, we have to understand the work of Jesus. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus, there are two things that Jesus kept saying that made the religious leaders irate and ultimately put him on trial for his death. The first was Jesus saying over and over again that God was his father. That really made the leaders upset. And the second was God saying, I'm going to replace the temple, which was uh, a stationary tabernacle. As we talked about, uh, this structure, this temple, this tabernacle, was something that was sacred. It was valuable. It was the meeting place between God and man. It was the place where heaven and earth met. But all of a sudden, here comes this Jewish carpenter who says, this temple is a shadow of the reality, and that reality is me. That's what Jesus says. Now, once we understand the tabernacle, I think this really helps us to understand what Jesus is actually doing when he goes to the cross. Hebrews 9 is uh, really helpful at this point. It says this, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What is Hebrews 9 saying? Hebrews 9 is saying this. What Jesus is doing on the cross is this. He, as the high priest, he enters into the tent. Not the tent found in Exodus, but the real tent, that which the tabernacle signified. Not a tent made with human hands, but Jesus enters heaven itself as the high priest. And then, what does he do? He takes a sacrifice, but not a sacrifice that is of goats and calves, but a sacrifice which is himself. So we find what the tabernacle, what's going on in the tabernacle is the priest with a sacrifice goes into the Holy of Holies, this tent. But what Jesus is actually doing on the cross is as high priest, he is entering into heaven itself and he's offering up himself as a sacrifice. So he's being the high priest entering heaven itself and giving himself as a sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews says this, everything that Exodus and the Old Testament talks about, it was fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. And through Jesus' work on the cross, we have obtained peace with God and we are granted full, full access to God. We can meet with God in and through Jesus. Amen. See, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the many supernatural things that occurred was that the curtain of the temple, 
Remember, there was a curtain that divided the most holy place and the holy place. That curtain, when Jesus died, he, he, he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. What happened was that curtain was actually torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom up, but from top to bottom. And that signified that when Jesus died on the cross, that thing which separated, which divided man and God, that thing was done away with. And now, through Jesus, we have total and full access to God. You know, I think when it comes to anything important, uh, government buildings, uh, airports, uh, any other public buildings that you try to enter into, anything that has uh, worth or sacredness or validity behind, there, there is this barrier that we have to cross. You know, for those of you who uh, have TSA PreCheck or Global Entry, you know how valuable these things can be when you just have straight access through. You know, and you know, I, I've had Global Entry for a couple of years, and the thing was great until more and more people started having it, and it just gets more and more crowded. They created something new, this thing called Clear. I don't know if you've heard of it, but this, this new thing called Clear. It's much more expensive, but you actually put your name in, and then you get someone to come to escort you all the way through security, just straight, straight through. <laughs> you know, what Jesus does on the cross is he breaks down all the barriers so we have complete and total full access to God. This is why he says, I'm going to replace this tabernacle. Friends, it's not that our worship, it's not that our worship is no longer sacred. I would say, in fact, it's all the more sacred. If the Israelites worshipped at a replica, we now worship at the real thing, the real place. Amen. We don't worship before sculpted angels or curtains with angels on it, but we worship before the host of angels in heaven above. We worship not at some sacred ark representing the footstool of God's throne, but we actually gather before the throne of God in worship. It's not that we are less sacred, it's more sacred. It's not that our worship is less valuable, compared to the tabernacle. No, our worship is all the more valuable because the sacrifice is not the blood of goat or of a lamb, but the precious blood of the Son of God. And friends, you want to talk about being impractical? There is nothing more impractical than the Son of God putting on flesh. There is nothing more inconvenient than the second person of the Trinity becoming a servant. There is nothing more foolish, nothing more preposterous than the Son of God being crucified and dying for the sins of the world so that now we can enter into perfect fellowship with God. This is where we are headed. When you go to the end of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, you know what it's about? It's a picture not of us going up to heaven, but it's a picture of heaven finally coming down in its complete stage. It's God finishing the work of the tabernacle, the temple, and Jesus' ultimate redemption where heaven and earth finally meets. Now, until that time, let me just give you one more piece of truth. Before heaven comes down, before Jesus returns, the New Testament tells us 
in between this time, God has given to us a deposit. And that deposit is the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us that now, through the Holy Spirit, we become the tabernacle. We become the temple because God, through His Spirit, lives in us. Remember how I said that the tabernacle was unfitting? It was awkward? This thing that represented life and hope was found in the wilderness? Well, the work of Jesus one-ups that. If I can ask you, what is the one place? What is the most lifeless and driest place? What is the most filthiest, or what is the most dirty and the most filthy place that God could actually dwell? It is not some desert. It is not some third world country. It is not some Motel 6 off the freeway. But the most dirty and filthy place is you and I. The most lifeless and hopeless thing. God chooses to dwell in. And in that, there is life. You know, one of the things you know, that Scripture talks about is, Scripture says our mouths are an open grave. Our mouths are an open grave. And you know why the Bible says our mouths are an open grave? Because everything in us is dead, it is dirty, it is filthy, it's filled with maggots, decay, and rotting. And when the Bible says our mouths are an open grave, it's saying whenever we open our mouths, everything that's dirty within comes out. But isn't it amazing that in this most lifeless, hopeless place, God chooses to dwell in. And just like the tabernacle, a lifeless, hopeless, dry and arid land where there was absolutely nothing, God chooses to place his tabernacle there. In the exact same way, God chooses to dwell in you. And whatever lifelessness you may be going through, whatever hopelessness you may be going through, There is in you life because God himself dwells in you. And may this be refreshing to your soul. Join me in prayer at this time.